I want to thank John for his gracious welcome. I also want to say that it's a very special privilege to have Dr. Walter Smith and uh, Dr. and Mrs. Grady Wilson uh, worshiping with us today. Uh, Walter Smith and Grady and Wilma Wilson have been great friends of ours for many years. They are associated with the Billy Graham Executive Committee that has been meeting here in Montreat, and we welcome you to our worship today. Our second lesson is found in Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. Perhaps it would be best to give you a little bit of an explanation of why his language is going to sound as vehement as it does as he speaks. As you know, Paul had gone into the city of Corinth and had established a church there. He stayed for some 18 months in Corinth. And after a church had been established, he went away and then began to receive rumbles of trouble back at the church in Corinth. This required him to write 1 Corinthians, in which he dealt with matters like Christians suing one another. He had to deal with factions. Some said, I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. And he had to tell them that uh, they should not be split up into this party attitude, but that they belonged to Jesus Christ who alone had died for them. He had to deal with matters of terrible immorality in the church. Both homosexuality and incest were prominent in that congregation, and he, must, he had to deal with it. Uh, there was abuse of the Lord's Supper. There was heresy concerning the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so Paul had to deal also with that, as well as a misuse of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which had created quite a clamor in the church there. Then in 2 Corinthians, he still contends with problems that have been called to his attention. And one of them is that his own right to be there apostle or authority has been called into question. And a matter very distasteful to Paul has to be answered. There are people probably who said uh, his apostolic authority simply rests upon a hallucination. There were others who said, well, you know he was a coward when uh, the Christians were persecuted in Damascus. They had to let him over the the side of the city wall in a basket so he could escape. Crowded into a corner and forced to defend himself, which is always an unpleasant task, he does this and also brings illumination on a problem that will confront you if it does not now, which is the problem of suffering. You may say, well, Pastor, I'm not suffering today. Well, I'm thankful that you're not but you may be tomorrow, or someone that you know may be, and so there's a word from God for you here this day. Now let me begin reading at verse 28 of chapter 11. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. 
I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think of me more than is warranted by what I do or say, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to do it. I ought to have been commended to you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The things that mark an apostle, signs and wonders and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this important part of his word. I hope that you will forgive me, those of you who have heard something about what I went through, but there are a number of people who listen week by week on the radio who have written to me and who will be listening to the broadcast of this message today, as well as the members of the congregation uh, who have not talked to me since the time that I went through surgery. So many of you prayed for me that I really don't think a germ had a chance in the <laughs> at the Mayo Clinic the night that I was operated on. It's interesting to go in, you know, interesting is an understatement, uh, to go into a situation like this. Samuel Johnson says that the prospects of being hung wonderfully concentrates the mind. <laughs> and and uh, uh, I can well remember uh, having been to a number of doctors and then told that I was to have what is called an angiogram. Uh, this is a little catheter, a little plastic tube that is either placed in a femoral artery down here or through uh, under your armpit and is passed into your heart. Now that's a tricky uh, little procedure, but it's not as bad as it sounds. And uh, I was told that the best place for me to get this done was up at the Mayo Clinic. I happen to have formed a friendship with Dr. James C. Kane, who is an old Texan who 
he wouldn't want to be called old, but he practiced there 33 years. Uh, Dr. Kane and I are very good friends, and he was the president, President Johnson's doctor, and so I called him to ask him about what I should do and whether or not he would be happier if I came up there, and he told me that he would, and that made me happier about it. And uh, so I went to the Mayo Clinic to have this procedure. Uh, I'll never forget the uh, little class that they have for it. Uh, they take you in classes up there. They do 1,500 a year in the particular hospital that I was in, and so uh, they had a little class of about 14 to 16 of us who were to have this procedure the next morning, just the little catheterization of the heart. And uh, I was in there, and I looked like the youngest one in the room, and uh, there were several older people, one man who came from our area of the country and with whose accent I could easily identify was shuffling along, and one lady, after having heard the explanation given to us by the technician that we didn't have anything to be afraid of with the procedure and that we were all to have this thing the next morning and seeing the slide strips about it. Uh, she uh, said, well, I certainly feel better after having heard this explanation. And this old brother was just shuffling his feet trying to get out of the room and he looked around with a wry smile on his face and he said, you can sure take my place. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I uh, also felt that way. I got back to my room and I called my friend Jim Kane on the phone. His wife said he's on his ham radio. She said, you're not so sure you want that procedure, are you? <laughs> and I said, you're about reading my mail. So Jim came to the phone and assured me that they had picked out uh, the man who came in to tell me about the procedure looked like Stephen Aceto, one of our young boys here in the congregation. And I said to him in my uh, tactful manner, I got a kid in medical school. <laughs> he smiled. He knew I was apprehensive. And he said, well, I'm certified in cardiology and uh, I'm in charge of the angiography department here. And he said, uh, this is one that we do a lot of. And so you can uh, feel better about it. And uh, so I, I uh, did feel better. And then the next morning when they went through the procedure, they had a little television set that you watch your heart beating on while they are doing it. And that was interesting. And then when I finished it, I thought it was all over. So I called my wife to tell her I'd be coming home to meet me at the airport. But I didn't get the report back from the test. And then in came one of the cardiologists, and he said, uh, Reverend, we have to tell you that uh, the left anterior descending artery of your heart is, is about 99% occluded. And uh, I didn't know quite what that meant, but it didn't sound good. And uh, then uh, he said, uh, uh, if it were 50% occluded or 60% occluded, why, we would treat it chemically and let you go home. But uh, we think that you're a candidate for surgery. And I said, surgery? I said, I read this thing in Time magazine on the airplane coming up here that said there were too many of these operations being done. <laughs> and, I, and I said, I feel better already. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, <laughs> he understood. And uh, he knew that uh, my sudden turn for the better was prompted by my reading of the magazine article. And uh, they had told us if we had any pain to buzz for a nurse, and I did have some pain, and I buzzed for a nurse, and they put a little nitroglycerin thing. And then here came about five doctors and rounded my bed and hooked me up to the mobile cardiography machine and uh, then began to take blood. And they said, tell us about this pain. 
And I said, it's not bad enough for an operation. <laughs> and, and they said, we didn't ask you that. Describe the pain. And I said, it's already gone away. <laughs> and they said, now, Reverend, this is important. They call you Reverend up there. Uh, they said, uh, is it a stabbing pain? Is it a throbbing pain? I said, it's just distress. <laughs> I said, it's nothing but a little fullness. And uh, they said, uh-huh. And then uh, they came back, and uh, I called my wife, and I said, they're talking about an operation, so maybe you better come up here. I told her to stay home, that there was nothing to it. And uh, so this, of course, uh, caused everyone here to start to pray. And then I asked them, I said, where is Jim Kane, my doctor? Because, you know, Jim is one of those doctors that when he walks in the room, you just feel better. Somebody else can give me the same medicine, and it still doesn't work as good as Jim gives it to me. And so I was waiting for him to come and tell me I had to have the operation and I would let him go. But uh, I didn't like it because he was gone someplace and they were trying to locate him and it was his last day of service. So they caught him out at the airport seeing a relative off and they said, we thought you'd want him. So they got him back. And then the surgeon came in and he went over everything that uh, they wanted to do. And then Jim came in and, and uh, Jim's daughter's name is Cindy and his son-in-law is a wonderful preacher whose name is Bill. And he said, Calvin, you don't have any choice. You've got to have the operation. And I said, would you say this if I was Cindy? And he said, yes. And I said, would you say it if I was Bill? And he said, yes. And then he went through the statistics and told me how the left anterior descending order, artery was the widow maker. And uh, so I decided I better have the operation. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I told him to go. Uh, it was a very apprehensive time. I, I explained to them that I wasn't afraid of death, but the sting of death did worry me a little bit. Uh, uh, and so uh, I asked if I could have the privilege of prayer, and that's what's leading me into our subject for this morning. Uh, they said yes. Of course, they would agree to anything right then to get me in that operating room. And uh, when we got into the operating room, it was already about 8 o'clock at night here, and people had met to pray. And so the anesthesiologist came in, and, and he took some kind of rubber thing and tied it around my arm and called for an arm board and introduced himself. And I said, are you going to put me to sleep? And he said, yes. And I said, well, I want to pray with you all. And he acted like he didn't hear me. And I know he heard me, uh, but he just kept on patting my veins to see if he could get one to stick up enough to put a needle in. And... Uh, uh, so, you know, intelligent people are a little bit embarrassed by prayer. They think it's sort of like a man talking to himself. In fact, they think a guy talking to himself makes more sense, uh, that he's talking to a personality, and they're not sure that God is there and sometimes. And so either shyness or ignorance or both uh, keep them from wanting you to pray. So this man... Uh, uh, began to keep going with his procedure, and I said, now, wait a minute. I want to pray. I said, I want to pray for you, and I want to pray for me. And, and uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to pray. So uh, he didn't know what to say still. <laughs> so he was kind of embarrassed, and he said, well, well, go ahead, pray now. And, and so I thanked the Lord for these gifted and talented people who could do this procedure, and I tried to have so many points in my prayer that would be just right, but it was very fervent. And uh, I thanked him for the equipment, and I thanked, said it had been a very hectic day and that we needed his peace. And then I prayed in the name of Jesus, and I heard a couple of them say amen. 
and that pleased me. They were probably Episcopalians, but it pleased me. <laughs> uh, I, and uh, I was glad that they did. And then uh, later, one of my Christian friends, uh, uh, who is a surgeon there, told me that the first assistant surgeon had been a little annoyed by my persistence about the prayer. But when they get halfway through this operation, they cut all the way through the sternum and they pull your chest apart and suffuse uh, potassium into your heart and stop it. And they told me, I believe, that my heart was stopped for 42 minutes. So it's a little exciting when they uh, put the juice to your heart to give it a little shock and then see if the vein that they've grafted from your leg into your heart is going to hold up when the blood flow gets into it. And uh, so the man who had objected to my prayer at this exciting moment in the operation suddenly changed his mind and thought prayer was a very good thing and that he wanted to go by in my room and talk with me about it, and so he told one of the other people about it. And then the reason that I said this today is for, I think, something like Paul was talking about here. All of this is to say that I was surrounded by prayer, and I have never, and that's the biggest word I can use, I have never felt the peace that I felt in that operating room that night either before or any other time, I felt very peaceful, and I felt that everything was all right. And so when I passed out, I was trying to say the 23rd Psalm, as is my custom in trouble, and uh, I could see the green pastures and the cool waters, and I could feel the presence of the Lord, and I, yeah, I, I felt like I was already one foot in heaven, and it didn't bother me a bit. And when I waked up, even the waking up in the, in the room, they wake you up in, I thought I was in Star Wars. There were computers and, and, and all kind of equipment. I had nine tubes and 30 electrodes attached to me. I counted them. And, uh, uh, but uh, they were wonderful to me. And then the recovery, and I think this is an answer to prayer. And that's why I wanted to bear a testimony to it. It's how God answers prayer. And then how the doctors began to come by and talk with me about faith in Jesus Christ and the good surgeon who had done the operation, a marvelous Roman Catholic and a great Christian. Uh, he did such a beautiful job of it, and we became friends in this experience, and then others became friends. Now, what I'm trying to say with this is that if we are willing to, uh, my first attitude toward the suffering was to escape it. I didn't want it. I think that's a normal attitude. I don't know anyone who's going around praying, Lord, give me an operation or cancer, and then I'll be a good servant of yours. Uh, you'd think someone was crazy who talked like that. Um, uh, children learn uh, in life that they are rewarded for things that they do wrong by pleasure, and they are punished for things that they do wrong by pain. And so as we grow older, we somehow think when pain comes to us that this is some sort of uh, punishment that the Lord has inflicted upon us or we can get into that mentality. I have an atheist friend who uh, has had a lot of trouble. And uh, he said to one of my other friends who is a Christian, they're both doctors, he said to him, why does all this have to happen to me? And so my friend who is a Christian said, why do you think it should happen to you? What's your reason? He was trying to probe him a little bit. And we asked that question, why? 
Well, the three responses that we have to suffering are one, to want to escape it, which is perfectly uh, natural. I would like to be of more service to the Lord, and so I'm willing to submit to the type of surgery and the regime that has been set down for me medically uh, so that perhaps I won't have another stroke or another heart attack and that I might be able to do some more good for him. If my life can be used to the praise of his glory, uh, then that's all right. Then there's another attitude towards suffering, and that's endure it. And let me say that I've seen some wonderful people who are not Christians who put those of us who are believers to shame by the fact that they can endure tremendous amounts of suffering with a heroism uh, that is simply in remarkable to behold. Uh, we can endure suffering, sometimes heroically, and sometimes we don't endure it very well. Sometimes it doesn't make us a better person. Sometimes we get pampered and waited on, and then we become too self-centered. And someone was telling me the other day about a relative who had gotten sick early in life, and uh, all of her relatives died waiting on her hand and foot, and she lived on years later. Uh, that happens that way. Uh, we can become very self-centered and make other people do our work for us. Uh, and there are some good things to be said about escaping it, which is what we ought to do if we can get out of it for the Lord. We can endure it because we can trust in the patience. Uh, we can trust in the fact that suffering with some sense in mind will mean that the Lord can use it to his glory, which brings us to the point that we can enlist it. Suffering can become our servant. It can make of us a a more useful Christian. And I think when Paul was being criticized here by these people in Corinth, they were saying, well, if he was such a tremendous apostle, why has all this suffering come upon him? Why does he have some disease that's loathsome and humiliating? And that seems to be what is referred to by the thorn in the flesh. And there are all kinds of explanations given for the thorn in the flesh. Everything from some person who thought Paul had a wife that was a nag and that that was his thorn in the flesh. Well, that's ridiculous. The, the gallstones, malaria, ophthalmia, epilepsy, you name it, uh, it's all been accredited to Paul. And it's a very good thing because the very variety of explanations given means that whatever we've got wrong with us, we might very well claim it. Paul doesn't specify it, so one of my crosses is to bear what the commentators write about it, to have to read through all that stuff. Uh, we don't know what it was. He was caught up into the third heaven. Now, the third heaven is the ultimate. I know that there's talk about seven heavens, but that comes from Zoroastrian. How do you say that word? Zoroastrian. Zoroastrian. Man, I'm glad I'm a Presbyterian. That's bad enough. But Zoroastrianism. Uh, Zoroaster taught that there were seven heavens, and that was kind of a shoot-off from some of the Hebraic literature. Now then, this type, uh, this thorn in the flesh could have been, and in my opinion, it was some type of physical malady. But it might just as well have been opposition that came to him, opposition that humiliated him because of his stand for the Lord Jesus. When I think of people who opposed him in town after town that he went to, 
and above all, the people whom he loved the most, his Jewish friends, whom he sought to persuade that Jesus was the Messiah. They would drag him out and beat him. And if you go back and read the verses in chapter 11 just before you come to this passage, you will find that he has been beaten many times across the back with 39 lashes. You will see that he's been beaten with rods. You will see that he's been stoned. Why? Because he was testifying to Jesus as the Messiah. Paul wasn't trying to find out what kind of manse they had in Corinth or how much his joy gift pension was going to be or whatever else would be given to him. He suffered terribly because he was taking the gospel out the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the great suffering that he went through caused people to say, well, he's crazy, he's had visions, hallucinations, uh, he is no real apostle. If he was, all this trouble wouldn't happen to him. And they reason in the wrong way. Uh, so the enduring of the suffering uh, became for Paul uh, something that he would enlist as his servant. He explains to us that he had been given a great revelation from God. A revelation means like pulling back the curtains and you can see what's in back of it. And God had taken him into his confidence, as it were, and it revealed to him things that were inexpressible, things that could not be uttered to human speech, in human speech, things that were marvelous. And Paul had been given this revelation, perhaps a rapture, a taking up of himself, as he puts it, into heaven. And this tremendous experience was given to him. And then Paul says, following this experience came this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan, to buffet him. The word buffet means like punching a punching bag, that you just keep punching it and keep the rhythm going. It's like a trip hammer that keeps going all the time. The messenger of Satan to buffet me. Satan came before God and said to God, I know your servant, Paul. I can take care of him. And God said, all right, Satan, just as he did with Job, you may go and touch Paul, but you may not take his life. You can give him a thorn in the flesh. And Satan gave him a thorn in the flesh. But Paul turned that thorn into the, into the flesh into a ministry. He said, I will glory in the infirmities and in the reproaches that he had to bear. And that in itself, you would think a man was absolutely mad who would say that I glory in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If I could guarantee to every person in this chapel that you would have perfect health for all the days God intended you to live, and that then one night you would just sweetly fall asleep and that you would never have to endure the problem of pain. I would have a lineup from here to New York City of people who would want to receive this kind of faith. The faith that is the most precious to Jesus is the faith that abides in him even in suffering. Remember that the Lord Jesus himself had a crown of thorns twisted and placed upon his head and pushed down. And the blood came down the sides of his face and his back had been beaten. He knew 
what thorns were like. But he also was obedient to God. And he knew that God has his own purposes which he is working out. Lieutenant Cleve McCleary has a brand new book that just came on the bookstands this summer. He stood one time right here behind this pulpit and spoke, and spoke to the students in our college. Cleve McCleary, a tremendous athlete from South Carolina, married to one of the most beautiful young women in South Carolina, a very influential, high moral standard coach, standing out on a hill in Vietnam taking a mission that was one more than he was really supposed to take, taking someone else's place, when suddenly there is thrown over into the position where he is a charge of explosives that blow up. And what is called a trauma amputation, the force of the explosion blew one of his arms completely off, blew one of his eyes completely out, shredded his right leg. And Cleve McClary, blinded with his eardrums broken, deaf, left as a mass of bleeding, suffering humanity. When the medivacs looked at him, they didn't even know whether to evacuate him or not. He was so near dead. And when he came to in the hospital, and when he saw the picture of his beautiful wife, and when he saw his own horribly mutilated face, he thought, how could she ever want me again? But then he wouldn't allow the tempter to move in and to tear him like this. But he yielded his painful circumstances to Christ. And so when he stands behind a pulpit, he can challenge young people, not from the advantage of one who is tremendously healthy, but one who through the good gifts of God in medicine and surgery has been blessed and helped and who today can play golf, who can play even tennis, and who is able by God's grace to carry on an effective and powerful ministry among young people. This is what God can do with a person who is willing to accept his suffering as from the hand of God and use it to his glory. He gives it back to God and he rests upon the word of God. Let me say this. The scriptures mean so much to us. I said a while ago that it had become my custom in times of anesthesia to quote the 23rd Psalm. I don't know how many people have faded out in operating rooms with that Psalm on their lips. I'm sure that many an operating room has heard it. Because people, when you are suffering, the scriptures if you really believe them, will speak to you in a way that they never spoke to you before. You can say, I am the resurrection and the life, and he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever shall live and believe in me shall never die. You can say all that a thousand times, but when at last you look at someone you love more than you love life itself, and you can say those words and really mean them, then the scriptures speak to you. We had a great uh, lecturer once in the theological seminary I attended, and he talked about Karl Barth's view of scripture. And Barth had said that these scriptures were not the word of God until they became the word of God to you. 
And the old man who addressed us said, I want to add one thing to that statement. How big is your Bible? How big is your Bible? How much do you rest upon the Word of God? An old preacher who helped me greatly gave me this advice. He said, rest in the Lord. Feed on his word. Exercise yourself unto godliness. And when I think of the program they put me on, of rest and exercise and diet, it's right in line. It's the best possible remedy for any kind of heart trouble. You can take it from God's word here. And we draw upon his grace, and it all goes back to that cross. He that did not spare his own son, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? That blesses me greatly. Because it's by grace. Paul was told in the midst of his suffering, Paul, my grace is sufficient. My grace is enough. And what is his grace? And where do you understand God's grace? You understand it at the cross of Jesus Christ and no place else. That suffering which he endured to pay the price for my sins is also bound up in my prayers for healing too. That passage in Isaiah 53 teaches us that and Jesus' citation about it in Matthew 8 teaches us that. But it also teaches me that my salvation is there. What are you going to plead if you go in the operating room and you don't wake up here, but you wake up seeking entrance into heaven? Someone told me a very good story about a Texan. I love these stories. This guy had gone up to heaven, died, had the best surgeons operating on him. <laughs> best hospital, but he died. And he got up there and the angel who was to make him admitted met him at the gate. And the angel said, you know, we're on the point system here. It takes a thousand points to get in. And the Texan said, well, I don't think I'll have any trouble with that. And the angel said, okay, let's go. How many points you got? And the Texan thought a minute. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. I was a Presbyterian elder for over 40 years. Angel said, that's great. One point. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he said, you got anything else? And he thought a minute and he said, man, if that's just worth one point, what am I going to He said, I was on the visitation committee and I kept a little book and I've got 2,000 visits that I made to people in their homes and in the hospital. How about that? Angel said, that's beautiful. One point. <laughs> he thought, good night. And then he said to the angel, listen, I not only tithed, but I gave more than a tithe, and I made a lot of money. I was into cattle, and I was into oil, and, and wheat, and cotton, and, and did very well. And you know, I have given, I figured out, I, I, I must have given at least $10 million to Christian work and to charity. Angel said, that's very nice. One point. <laughs> and the Texan thought, good grief. How am I going to get in this place? And he told the angel, he said, what am I going to do? 
He said, I guess I'm just going to have to trust in the grace of God. The angel said, that's 1,000 points. <laughs> that's all. That's all that will get us in there. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it as white as snow. And then what about this unglorious suffering and how can we use it to the glory of God? I visit often and try to when I get started back. I used to get to visit a lot in nursing homes and places like this. This is a book by Dr. Thomas H. Spence, who will be teaching prayer meeting Wednesday. It's a memoir of his life, Elizabeth Holman Spence. She was in nursing homes and hospitals around the Asheville area for about six years. Here is a man whose life has been guided by the Spirit of God and who is able to take even the unglamorous suffering of a protracted illness, as many wonderful people in Montreat have seen and other Christians too, and to use it even to the glory of God. I wish there were time to go through this marvelous book with you. He came from Virginia, up in the hills. Look at the sweet poem he writes to the one he loved. Mid mountains high I found you, and air shall love them well. For when the dark hills round you beneath your charms I fell, and in those hills I won you when springtime shone benign. Their spell was cast upon you to you, till you were wholly mine. So with the night winds resting where the summit starward soar, wearied from their questings, I'll bless those peaks once more. Since then in April led you to love me in that spring, and promised I might wed you some summer evening. And then when, after the years had gone by and they had served in many places and she had become ill, was in the nursing homes around Asheville. I used to go and visit him, and I would see him pushing her in the wheelchair for little outings. And he was always singing under his breath. I couldn't make it out, but it was a little deal that they had going between them. And in his book, he has some little jingles. This place is very, very nice, quite nice as one can see. But you yourself are nicer far than any place can be. And then he goes on, since you are you are you and I am I. Oh, would it not be fine if I were yours forevermore and you were always mine? Oh, come to me at midnight tide when sun is riding high, or otherwise I now propose to sit me down and cry. Oh, come to me when day is done and when the sun is set. But if you do not come to me, I'll go to you, you bet. And then those of us who were present on the day that her service was here in Gaither Chapel. We remember it very well. I remember the singing of Rock of Ages, Cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. On Monday the 18th of April, 1977, the lengthening shadows of the evening fell across the highland valleys at Sheer in the Mountains. They foretold the close of another mountain day, but for her, dark did not come. Before the going down of the sun, she gently passed into the land of light ineffable, beyond the tenuous veil shading the redeemed in glory from the eyes of those whose walk is still by faith and not by sight. From Locust Bend, the place where she'd grown up in Virginia, 
Richmond, Banner Elk, Edinburgh, Dunfermline, New York, Hastings, Nebraska, and Montreat, as well as all the succeeding nursing homes and hospital years, they were all behind, and she was at home, at home forever. Montreat friends concurred in providing all the possible assistance to the family. Others came from other communities to support us by their presence. Altogether, such kindly concern was a special blessing to each of us. Her pastor and Kenneth Foreman, a close family friend, conducted the services in Gaither Chapel. The great and goodly grove at the Rocky River Church and its environments, we drove there for the service. We're at their springtime loveliest at four o'clock on the same afternoon as her dear ones and friends gathered for a second service held in the adjacent cemetery. The ministers from Montreat and the minister there officiated at this time. The cemetery at the rear of the church at Rocky River is a place of holy quiet, a quiet perhaps to remain unbroken until that radiant day of utter finality when the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. You see, all kinds of things can be turned into a blessing, from a hero's wounds in Vietnam to a person who goes through long and trying illness with someone in the nursing home. When that suffering is truly surrendered over to the Lord and we hear his voice, my grace is sufficient for you, then that's all we need. When George Matheson was told that he was going blind, the girl to whom he was engaged broke off the engagement. His sister came to live with him and he finished his work at Glasgow University. I used to walk right through the place at Edinburgh where he went to the doctor. And George Matheson, some 20 years later in the manse at In Ellen in Scotland, when his sister was being married, was all alone in the manse and blind. But he could write and listen to what he says about the hymn that we sing in closing. My hymn was composed in the Manson in Ellen in the evening of the 6th of June, 1882. I was alone at the time. It was the day of my sister's marriage and the rest of the family were staying overnight in Glasgow. Something had happened to me which was known only to myself and which caused me the most severe mental anguish. That was the memories of what had happened when the loved one he had had broken off their engagement. The hymn was the fruit of that suffering. It was the quickest bit of work I ever did in my life. I had the impression rather of having it dictated to me by some inward voice than of working it out. I am sure that the whole work was completed in five minutes. I am equally sure that it never received at my hands any retouching or correction. The hymnal committee of the Church of Scotland desired the change of one word. I had written originally, I climbed the rainbow in the rain. They objected to the word climb, and I put in the word trace. Now in prayer. Before I pray, please let me say this. 
that if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, this would be a very precious day to do it, August the 20th, 1978. Just to say X marks the spot that on this day, to the best of my knowledge and ability, I gave as much of myself as I know how to give to as much of Jesus as I understand. There is a mystery in suffering. Paul understood this. But if we are willing to yield it to the Lord Jesus, he will bless it and make it something that will be for his glory. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore.